0: There's joy in every journey. Presented by T Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Label! It's 30 with Murdy, with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Hi
1: everybody and welcome back on this episode of 30 with Murdy, a conversation with one of the best players in baseball in the 1970s and 80s, the Cobra, Dave Parker. Parker, along with Dave Jordan, has written his story in a new book called Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. It's available now and published by the University of Nebraska Press. When I was first getting into baseball in the late 1970s, Dave Parker, then with the Pittsburgh Pirates, was one of the most feared players in all of baseball. Built like a linebacker and blessed with five-tool talent, Parker won a pair of batting titles in 1977 and 78. He was the NL MVP in 78 and the All-Star Game MVP in 79 when he unleashed maybe the greatest highlight reel outfield assist ever at the Kingdome in Seattle. And he helped lead Pittsburgh to the World Series title in 1979 alongside Willie Stargell. All of that happened in a three-year period in which he also won three Gold Glove Awards. But in 1979, Parker became the first player ever in any sport to earn $1 million per year. It changed his relationship with fans at home and on the road. And at least once, fans famously threw batteries at Parker in the outfield. And it changed Parker, too. Succumbing to pressure, racial tensions, and other personal problems, Parker turned to cocaine. Of course, he wasn't alone in that in professional sports, but in 1985, two years after he quit his cocaine habit, Parker was embroiled in the famous Pittsburgh drug trials, along with other star players like Tim Raines and Keith Hernandez. Drug dealers were sentenced to jail. The players involved were publicly humiliated and suspended by the commissioner, although the sentence was erased by community service instead of games missed. Parker reestablished himself as an All-Star in Cincinnati, then moved over to the American League where he was twice named winner of what became the Edgar Martinez Award for Outstanding DH. In 1989, he won a second World Series ring with the Oakland A's, and by the time his career ended in 1991, his veteran leadership had younger teammates calling him Pops, just like he did with his teammate Willie Stargell in the 70s. In his new book and this podcast, Parker talks about growing up in Cincinnati in the late 1960s and early 70s, his playing career highs and lows, and his battle with Parkinson's, which was first revealed in 2013. In this interview, which was done over Zoom in late March, Parker was understandably slow to answer at times and made reference to freezing when the Parkinson's halted his mind from answering a question right away. It happened twice during a half-hour talk, and I've edited those and a few other long pauses out of what you're about to hear, but I also left a few of them in because it's important to know what Parker does suffer from, Parkinson's disease, and it's something he's trying to help raise money for, raise money for a cure, through his Dave Parker 39 Foundation. Here is my conversation with the Cobra, Dave Parker. Dave, I just want to start by asking you this. You've been out of the game for 30 years. What made you want to write a book about your life and career now?
2: Well, uh... Being in baseball, nobody really knew a lot about me. All they heard was some of the negative things. So I wanted to just let people know that, you know, Dave Parker exists. And he's – I uh, definitely just wanted people to know more about Dave Parker. And uh, that's what this book is all about.
1: One of the things I really enjoyed is um, you you set this up early and you come back to it often – For uh, a young black kid who grew up in the 60s, someone who played a very important role in your life is an old white woman named Helen Kugel. Can you tell people who she was and why she was important in your life?
2: Well, she was my high school counselor. And uh, I was um, an athlete, um, a goddess was known about school, and a lot of times I neglected taking care of my duties as a student, and uh, she was the one to keep me on track. And uh, Miss Kugel was uh, uh, a big part of my high school uh, career as an athlete and as a student.
1: What was What was her role as you were getting up through the game and becoming one of the superstars in the game? What was her role in your life? Maybe when you'd come home every winter to Cincinnati, what were the kind of things that you guys would talk about?
2: Well, we would have dinner together just about every trip that I came into town. And she was uh, gonna be at the ballpark, uh, rain, snow, sleep, whatever. <laughs> she was definitely gonna be there. And uh, uh, her husband' name was Irv, uh, and Irv uh, uh, and I became very tight because of me and Mrs. Kugel's relationship. So it was like just uh, being an extension of my family.
1: Dave, one of the things I really enjoyed was uh, was reading about how you grew up and where you grew up, and you know when you grew up really is really important. Um, you grew up in the civil rights era, the Vietnam era, uh, and kind of the aftermath of that in Cincinnati. And you write about your childhood with a great deal of fondness, and I'm sure that's normal for people of a certain age now. But you know that was a time in this country that had a lot of anger and you don't really look back on that with much of that emotion. What, what do you, why do you remember that time so fondly? Well, it was, uh, the
2: sixties and the seventies. Uh, they had people like slash stone that, uh, I listened to regularly. Uh, he was a part of my, uh, high school years. And, uh, I didn't have much, but what I had, I, you know, was proud of, and uh, I grew up in a a neighborhood that was uh, baseball-oriented, football. It was always uh, something to to do, and uh, it didn't take money money to do a lot of the things that we were doing. So, uh, it was a, a community that, was um, easily to adapt to and be a part of.
1: So was it a little bit of culture shock to you as you're coming up through the minors, and specifically you write about some incidents in the Carolina League? This is the early 1970s. There are some areas in there and some stories that really speak to racism uh, that you faced and your teammates faced. Um, How did you deal with it? Well, it was um, having teammates,
2: you know, was was a key. Uh, Ron Mitchell was uh, one of my teammates that we were like brothers and we dealt with racism uh, together. And everywhere we went, we went together. But uh, I uh, always took it out on the baseball. You know, playing baseball uh, kept me in a a situation where I uh, could look over racism. Uh, I had people that would tell me, uh, you get another hit we're going to grease the watermelon and throw you in the river, you know, stuff like that. I had to deal with Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, uh, was one of the cities that was pretty rough on us. Uh, but we, uh, dealt with racial slurs all the time, but, uh, my teammates and I stuck together and- Survived
1: it. I want to mention a couple of names to you, uh, Dave. And you write some really good stories about these guys. I just want to get a quick take on you. Uh, what these people meant to you in your in your baseball life. Uh, and let's start with the guy who you know looked out at you one day in right field and said, "I know what my replacement looks like," and that's Roberto Clemente.
2: He was a great one. I mean, uh, I just enjoyed being around him. You know, just uh, have an opportunity to be spraying spring training with him, into the spring training. I was in awe. I would follow him around and just watch him. Um, he was uh, definitely a great one. And uh, to be compared to him uh, as a player is something that uh, I hold very proudly, you know, to be considered a possible next Roberto Clemente was uh, something that uh, I uh, was very proud of.
1: How about Willie Stargell? That's my pop.
2: Uh, Willie was uh, instrumental to me coming to the major leagues, and he uh, kind of led led me around to keep me on solid solid ground. Willie was uh, an inspiration to me. I tried to be everything that Willie was and the way to to be a good major leader was to follow Willie Starder around. That's all you had to do because Willie uh, did everything right. And uh, I uh, definitely latched on to his coattail and tried to do everything that he did.
1: There's a player, you know, a lot of the names in this book are players that people recognize and some of them are ones that they don't because they just never got the opportunity to play in the big leagues. You seem to have a lot of respect for a guy named Charlie Howard. What do you want to tell people about who he was and what he meant to you?
2: Charlie Boo was um, a left-hand hitter, first baseman, and um, hit 300 every year with about 25, 30 home runs and uh, just never got the chance to make it to the major leagues. Uh, it was really sad that, you know, you had a talent like this trapped uh, in your minor league system and you never had the opportunity to to get him to the major leagues and that was sad. But Charlie Boo was uh, a lot like Stargirl. I had um, uh, a roommate and it was Charlie Boo. We uh, took care of each other Tuck, tuck, turns cooking and uh, we just mentored each other and Charlie was a guy that was really sad that he didn't make it to the major leagues
1: How about Pete Rose? Your history with him goes back a long way from watching him growing up as a kid to then playing for him later as a manager uh, a lot of time and playing against him too um, Pete seemed to be very meaningful to you really throughout your whole life
2: yeah, just watching him play, competing against him uh, was a, a big thrill. Uh, Pete was uh, the athlete known as Cincinnati. There's a, a lot of people that think that uh, you talk about athletes that come from Cincinnati. It was uh, Pete and myself. Uh, of course, we got other guys like Kenny Griffey Jr. and Barry Larkin uh, was Cincinnati athletes. And uh, Pete was uh, – uh, inspiration to me i mean i enjoyed playing against him and was big a big thrill playing with him uh so pete was uh, very instrumental to me all
1: right and i got one more uh name i want to throw at you this might not be as much fun for you but i'm doing it anyway i grew up in the harrisburg area and you were either phillies fan or pirates fan back then so i was a phillies fan and i got to watch steve carlton throw sliders at you quite a bit what do you remember about facing him I remember it was going to be a tough take. You know, Steve had a, an unhittable,
2: unhittable slider. He threw miller middle plate out, and when it broke, it broke over in the left-hand hitter's box, uh, batter's box. And uh, it was uh, a battle every time I faced him. But uh, it, it's an interesting stat when you talk about Carlton. Uh, he would strike me out three times and then throw a slider at me that would break across the plate and I hit a home run. I, <laughs> I hit more home runs off of Steve than I did any other player that I faced. But uh, I, I could look forward to punching out three times <laughs> and hoping that he'd throw a slider at me. And uh, that was an interesting stat.
1: That's, That's a great day a in today's game, Dave.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: I agree. <laughs> Um, I, I, I did an interview with Kent Tachovia a few years ago and I marveled with him about the, just how diverse that Pirates Clubhouse was in the seventies and particularly 79. Um, he he said you guys referred to it as the United Nations of baseball, uh, pretty diverse group. And all of you seemed to gel really well together, didn't you? Yeah, we did. I mean, we were a family. I mean, we uh, would
2: have uh, people bring in Dominican food, rice and beans, uh, ribs. Um, we had a banquet before games, and and uh, we were just a unique group. And um, the, the, the theory of us being a family is, is very true. We were a family, and we cheered for each other. Uh, we uh, spent time
1: uh, with each other's family. So we were were a great group. Dave, I want to read this passage to you and and tell me, because one of your former teammates told me that Pittsburgh wasn't ready for Dave Parker in the 1970s. And one of the things you wrote about this here, it says, I couldn't let it go. This is the way fans treated you at times. I couldn't let it go because I couldn't understand it. I received racially charged letters and threats of the ugliest kind. Did I start checking out more and more to drown out the pain? What do you think? And, you know, that's kind of your intro into talking about how you got led down, you know, down the path that led you to cocaine use and the things that happened in Pittsburgh. Um, when you look back on it now, how much did that time and that relationship how uneasy was that on a daily basis for you because here you are trying to play baseball at the highest level and you are at that particular point in time yet all these other things are are going on around you well
2: it was a situation when i got the big contract that's when everything went south um people just couldn't relate to you know a, a baseball player making that kind of money or any athlete making that kind of money uh, Pittsburgh was going through uh, a time where uh, the coal industry was down, the steel industry wasn't doing well, and they just couldn't relate to me making that kind of money. And uh, one of the, the reasons uh, I think I fell short in in dealing with the, the public was that every time I went out, uh, I was confronted with something. So I just stayed at home. And I think that led to me uh, possibly uh, dealing with uh, my cocaine use, uh, which was uh, at a time when Pittsburgh was really struggling financially.
1: One of the things that um, that you didn't touch on, and I'm curious your take: um, how did you like? What did it mean to you to have to tell your family? And tell your kids and and tell your parents that that this was a problem in your life and that that you had fallen victim to this. Well,
2: uh, I would just tell my my parents anything. You know, my mother, I could be laying in the street covered in feces, (laughs) but my mother would pick me up and wipe me off and give me back a, a board. Uh, So it wasn't no problem uh, telling my mother and father because they were going to be there for me anyway. Just uh, the idea of being an athlete, making the kind of money I was making, uh, I think it could happen to anybody. Uh, Cocaine was uh, a fad. I tried to look at it as a a fad. Some people could handle it, some people couldn't. And I watched people that, that couldn't destroy themselves and i was fortunate enough to to be strong enough to to work my way through and and survive and continue to play what was it like having to tell your kids well my kids was young danielle was the only kid that i had and uh i think one of the reasons uh i stopped was because uh her um being born and uh that was something that made me uh, give it up
1: you know i don't know if you know this dave but your famous t-shirt has made a bit of a comeback these days um rotoware is a company that cranks out some fun shirts and about a month ago luke voigt the yankees first baseman is on a zoom call just like you and i are on and he's wearing this shirt, and the NY is highlighted because it's in Yankee colors, but um, it's the famous shirt that's kind of made the rounds now. If you hear any noise, it's just me and the boys bopping. What's it like to know that you know uh, that little statement of yours is making a comeback these days? It's been
2: 40 years, and they're still using that. I told him, I said, well, you know, uh, wearing a shirt is one thing, but you got to be able to box. I said, if you ain't bopping, you can't wear the shirt. So I talked to him for a minute, and we talked about the, the shirt uh, being what they were wearing under the uniforms this year, and uh, I was uh, flattered. You know, uh, it's 40 years, and they're still doing something that I did, and uh, it's prominent, a
1: shirt, uh, 40 years. So I'm uh, I'm proud of it. That's fantastic. Um, One of the fun things that kind of got overlooked, I think, in 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 this part of the book, you know, every once in a while, you know, in New York especially, we see highlights of the '86 Mets and the big brawl they had with the Reds. And one of the details that I'd never heard before, you wrote about that after this whole incident, you got in your car and you drove to the Mets hotel. And you watched the players get off and you were looking for Ray Knight. Now, nothing happened, but what what did you think was going to happen? What are you what were you preparing to do?
2: Well, I was going to confront him because what he did, he sucker punched Eric. Eric was being held and he hit him in the jaw and, and Eric kind of folded him in, in uh, the Empire's arms or one of the players' arms. And uh, I thought it was a... A rotten deal. So I went up to the Hyatt and was waiting for the bus to come. And had a a cocktail or two. And uh, I was going to confront Ray and tell him um, how horse shit I thought that was.
1: (laughs) You ended up driving away because you didn't see Ray? You kind of glad that nothing happened? Or were you looking forward to that confrontation?
2: Well, I was glad nothing happened because uh, Ray and I always had a good relationship. Hmm. But uh, that was something that was uh, something that I didn't like. And uh, Eric, like I said, folded a little bit. he kind of rendered him unconscious for a second. And uh, I didn't like that too much.
1: Dave, you played a really long time, but if you look at the time when you did play, your division especially and the, your home ballpark had a lot of hard astroturf between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and Montreal and St. Louis and even in Cincinnati when you played. Um, your second half of your entire career, you're dealing with a lot of really bad knee injuries. How much of that do you think could have been helped if you just gotten off that turf for a little while? Uh, it wouldn't have helped
2: because, uh, you know, you got
1: concrete under the the glue and uh,
2: astral turf with a pad, then you put the turf on, and it still made it a hard surface. And uh, I played, like, 14 years on astral turf. I think if I would have played on a different surface, natural surface, I could have probably played a little longer.
1: You ended up playing pretty close to... um to get to the Hall of Fame, too, with over 2,700 hits, and I know that's uh, something that's uh, it's kind of there. If you're ever elected to the Hall of Fame in these next couple of years, what would it mean to you? It would be great. You know, uh, something else I could <clears throat> add to my
2: resume, uh, something that uh, I could leave to my kids and, and my wife. Uh, I think uh, I've done enough to... To be a Hall of Famer, what do you think,
1: Dave? <laughs> I think mean, you possess a holistic resume, and that surpasses the burdens of proof for enshrinement to the National Baseball Hall of Fame. There's a, there's certainly a lot of bold face, and uh, that certainly uh, counts when, when you're talking about Hall of Fame, uh, and the people who you played with and against like to talk to, about you being one of the best players in the game for a long period of time. Uh, I imagine that that means something to you when you hear the people that you competed with talking about you in that regard. Yeah, that's
2: flattering too. You know, uh, I have people that identify to me as one of the toughest outs uh, that they had as a pitcher. Uh, I uh, had more assists and any outfielder during my era. Uh, I uh, played hard, ran every, every ball out. One thing you can say about Dave Parker that, you know, he always played hard. And, uh, that was one thing I, I, I was proud of. And, uh, I was very physical. And, um, uh, that was a, a part of my game. I guess that came from my football days, but, uh, I was um a player that played the way you should play the game and get the fans their money worth and uh gave my organizations that I played for uh gave them their money worth as well.
1: I enjoyed reading about your football days and your uh you know possibility of going to Ohio State. I'm kind of picturing you as a maybe a precursor to Earl Campbell at running back. Is that was that kind of your style?
2: No, I was uh, a shaking bait
1: guy. Oh, you were.
2: Yeah, I'd run over somebody if I had to, but I had good open field moves and uh, good speed. I would hit the old hole, bounce to the outside. You got to catch me from there.
1: <laughs> you and you were hard to You know, that's the other thing people talk about. For as big a guy as you were, you were fast.
2: Yeah, I could I could run a little
1: bit. When uh, when they talk about tools. Um, your arm is certainly at the top of the list. You mentioned all the outfield assists. One of the I love the sentence you wrote where you said at the end when you talk about trying to run into people and, and talk to people about your career and your game, you say, give me one of your memories, I'll share one of mine. I have to imagine that people bring up the 79 All-Star game to you quite a bit and the two throws that earned you the MVP.
2: Yeah, that was uh, the first time that they had um, awarded the MVP for defensive uh, throws. And uh, that was uh, uh, a big deal for me because that's something that uh, they they seldom talk about. You know, my uh, assists and uh, my DHs of the year. I was DH of the year, back-to-back years. Nobody hardly talks about that. But uh, them – Throws were something that uh, people bring up every time I, I'm in the public.
1: You know, I have to think that there are not a lot of great outfield arms. There are some good ones, but there are not, not a lot of great outfield arms in the game today. Um, you know, an arm like yours today, they might, they might make you a pitcher. I mean, there are a lot of guys your size that are out there on the mound throwing 98-99. Uh, I have to think they might take advantage of something like that. You ever think of that compared to today's game?
2: But well, with the money they're paying these players now, I'm willing to give it a shot. <laughs> you got to come back in you. Yeah. I uh, had a 30 older team after I retired. After being out for about three years, I had a 30 and older team called the Cobras. <laughs> and uh, I did pitch. I was the ace. No kidding. And all I had was a fastball. And uh, we had... Um, some good years but uh i did the 30 and older thing for about i guess 10 years you know kept got my whole high school team together and it was uh reminiscing
1: from those days and uh i uh, really enjoyed myself Are you still bringing a good fastball back then in your 40s yeah, I was throwing pretty good. I had to be close to ninety, if I was ninety,
2: and uh, I had a, uh, I, I would cut the fastball to left-hand hitters, and that was my out pitch.
1: <laughs> yeah, you you'd be a closer today. You wouldn't be a right fielder. You'd be a closer. Goodness, um, I've got just a couple of more quick ones for you, Dave. Uh, you played in a time when there were a lot of black baseball players and a lot of black superstars, not just players in the game. And those players are dwindling in today's game. Um, I'm, you know, you grew up in a time and you, you tell this great story about how you're outside in Cincinnati and Frank Robinson and Beta Pinson come out and they see a, a group of you guys playing ball in the parking lot at Old Crosley Field. When you think about where the black superstars and the back players have gone in baseball today um you know what do you what do you think does it make you sad do you think there's still hope for bringing those types of players back into the game
2: yeah there's there's hope I mean uh they're putting forth an effort to to do that now you know uh, uh I tried to, to do it as, as far as uh, players that I played with Eric Davis uh, I explained to him make sure you leave a legacy for those who come behind you and uh, they uh, they kind of grabbed hold to it uh, Eric Davis, Barry Larkin uh, you know, were, were players that uh, I had influence on, Gary Shetfield uh, he was a player that did a lot of inner city stuff and would go out his way to talk to youth and just have
1: kids pick up on baseball. Dave, I have one more for you. Your battle with Parkinson's is public it's not a very large part of this book. It's, you know, you don't really mention it as a big part of your story, except at the very end. Uh, What would you like to tell people who are wondering how Dave Parker's doing these days and how you're dealing with it?
2: Well, you know, you have your good and bad days. And uh, this is one of those days that I'm I'm challenged. But uh, Parkinson is uh, something that I'm, I deal with uh, my foundation. We raise money to try to... uh, I I, I participate in things to to help the cause and uh, raise money. I got a foundation that I've had for going on eight years. It'll be my eighth year this year. And uh, Mm I enjoy going out in dealing with people that are associated with Parkinson and uh, try to uh, do as much as I can.
1: The book is called Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. It's co-authored by Dave Jordan and is available now anywhere books are sold, published by the University of Nebraska Press. You heard Jordan's voice briefly there. He was seated next to Parker during this interview, and that's who Parker was talking to during the Hall of Fame discussion. Parker topped out at just 24% on the writer's ballot, far shy of the 75% needed for election. He is a candidate for the Modern Era Committee ballot, which will meet again in December 2023 Parker's resume over 2,700 hits 339 homers 1,493 RBIs seven-time all-star two-time world series champion batting champ mvp His war takes a hit because he didn't walk a lot, and despite his gold glove prowess, he made 142 errors to go along with his 143 outfield assists. For some perspective, Dave Winfield had 166 outfield assists, but only 95 errors. And certainly, a few down years due to injury and his involvement in the drug scandal have hurt his chances in the past. Tim Raines overcame the latter to be elected to the Hall of Fame a few years back. He has plenty of supporters among former teammates, including a young second baseman who came up with the Pirates named Willie Randolph, and a former minor league teammate who went on to manage in the big leagues, Terry Collins. If the day ever comes that Parker is elected to the Hall, hopefully he's still able to stand up and make the speech he would surely deliver with a great deal of pride. My thanks to Dave Parker for sharing his time. Again, the book is called Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. Please check out the 30 with Murdy archive at Odyssey, formerly known as Radio.com, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to subscribe and review. Also check out the new WFA and Baseball Insiders podcast, which features Yankees updates from me and Mets updates from Ed Coleman. Same thing there. Subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Sweeney Murdy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what?